Welcome to uh, St. Martin the Fields and welcome to Great Sacred Music, those of you on site and those of you joining us online. Today we're marking the birth of John the Baptist, traditionally celebrated in the church on the 24th of June, in some parts of the church on the 25th of June. If you work it out, you can work out we're exactly six months before Christmas Day. You probably don't want me to say that in the middle of summer. Um, but there's no coincidence about that, <clears throat> because if you think about it, John the Baptist, if the Luke story in Luke's Gospel is going to work, uh, and Mary goes to visit Elizabeth when they're both pregnant, in order for, them for Mary to know that she's pregnant, and for Elizabeth not yet to have had the child, and the visitation ends up being on the 31st of May in the church's calendar, you're going to end up somewhere around June, for, uh, for when we celebrate the birth of John the Baptist. I don't think anyone's under the impression this is the exact date any more than they are uh, for Christmas Day. Uh, but another significant part of the story to note is that if you think about where the four gospel writers start their gospels, John obviously has the, the prologue starting at the beginning of, of all things. Um, Matthew starts with a long genealogy but the other two gospel writers start with John. Mark starts with uh, the passage we're going to look at in a few moments' time about John um, announcing the coming of Jesus in the wilderness. And Luke starts in the temple with the annunciation to Zacharias that he is going to have a son, John. And of course, he is dubious about it and is struck dumb until he says the words, his name is John, just after John has been, um, been born. So you'll also be aware that John came to a rather unpleasant end uh, and his head was on a platter and so on. And there's not a lot of music about heads on platters for reasons that you can probably imagine. So the, the music uh, about John tends to focus either on his birth or or on his ministry. He denied that he was the Elijah that people were expecting to come as a forerunner to the Messiah, but Jesus seems to confirm that he saw him as an Elijah figure. So there's a lot of ambiguity about his ministry, but it seems clear that three of his disciples later became Jesus' disciples, so there was clearly an overlap between the message they were each bringing. And those of you who come from the southern area just south of Baghdad, uh, there may or may not be people with us today from that part of Iraq, but you'll know that in that part of Iraq, even till today, the Mandaean Gnostic sect uh, still survives, uh, who are particularly devoted to John the Baptist. And one way in which they prepare our souls for immortality is to have lots and lots of baptisms. Not so prevalent in London. Now, we're going to start, as we always do, a great sacred music by singing together. Uh, we, you can find the hymn on the inside of the sheet. If you haven't got a sheet and you're in the building, they're just in the centre of the aisle. Um, and we're going to sing the great forerunner of the morn, which was written in the 8th century by the ven Venerable Bede, for John the Baptist Day. The original has 16 stanzas. You'll be pleased to know uh, we're not going to be singing all of those today. It was translated by J.M. Neal in the 19th century. 
and it found its way into the first edition of Hymns Ancient and Modern in 1861. We remain seated, voices stand and lead us as we sing the great forerunner of the morn. going to hear uh, a bit of Palestrina, which is always a, a treat. Fuit homo missus adeo. Uh, those of you who remember John's prologue, uh, verses 6 and 7 of John chapter 1, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. For reasons I'm not not actually aware of, the words of the second part of, of, of um, verse 7 are changed in this version and it finishes, it starts the same way as John, uh, the, the verses from John 1, but then it finishes and to prepare for the Lord a perfect people. I thought I'd just pop that in for those who, whose rapid translation of the Latin uh, was going to unsettle them. I don't want you to be unsettled. The, the words are different in Palestrina's version. Um, this was composed for the, for the nativity of John the Baptist, and it's very much the theological emphasis of what John the Baptist represents, which is really two words, witness and testimony. Uh, this is the power of the spoken word and the, the, the witness who has been present and then testifies to others. In a sense, John the Baptist represents the, what the gospel writers are doing, witness and testimony. He's an embodiment. He isn't Jesus, but he is constantly pointing to Jesus. And, and if you see John represented in art, particularly uh, Renaissance and Reformation art, 
Uh, he's always got a, a finger. He's always pointing, uh, pointing to Jesus. And that's what these verses are all about.
One of the themes we come back to over and over again in great sacred music is the way that the Old Testament texts text that have become associated with significant events recorded in the New Testament, those Old Testament texts, as far as the composers are concerned, are almost absorbed into uh, the New Testament text and become just as valid uh, in uh, marking the, the occasion in the church year as the New Testament texts do. So one exa recent example in the church's year is Ascension, where some of the psalms associated with Ascension Day become the prime uh, pieces of the text set to music, particularly by the ancient composers. And that's very much true of John the Baptist as well. Isaiah 40, uh, prepare the way of the Lord, is the beginning of the servant songs, the change of mood in Isaiah, the passages that were written during the exile that portray a very different understanding of God from the earlier part of the Old Testament and the earlier part of Isaiah itself. So prepare the way of the Lord. This, these are almost the first words in Mark's Gospel and they appear, I think, in all of the Gospels, um, possibly with the exception of John. And they are obviously significant in many musical compositions. They are the first words sung in Godspell, for example, uh, and they almost sum up the whole notion of what Handel is doing in the first um, part of Messiah. So we're going to hear uh, a setting by Michael Wise of Prepare Ye the Way of the Lord, and then we're going to move on to this is the record of John, one of Orlando Gibbon's best-known uh, compositions. In, in the beginning of John's Gospel, John the Baptist says three kinds of no. He's asked a whole bunch of questions. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet that was expected to come before the Messiah. I am a voice crying in the wilderness. And again, that's a reference back to Isaiah 40. It's, it's important to remember that the, the, the people that are described in the New Testament, and particularly those writing the New Testament, they didn't think they were creating a new religion. And the reason why there's this preponderance of Old Testament texts through, through the Gospels is it's a way of saying this, this is our tradition. This was all anticipated. This is a true form of Judaism that's being described in the Gospels. And that's very much the case in these quotations from Isaiah. But just a, a plea for modern translations. Of course, the, um, the, the Gibbons uses the ancient translation. And it has this rather confusing opening line, this is the record of John. As I was saying earlier, a better translation would be testimony or witness. He's not referring to a long playing record. It, 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 record is a rather confusing term there. This is the testimony of John uh, that's being described. So let's listen to these two pieces, one from Isaiah 40 and one from John chapter 1.
Well, it's time for us all to sing uh, again now. And there's three curious things about the hymn on Jordan's Bank, the Baptist cry, which we're about to sing and you'll find on the inside of the sheet. Uh, it was written in Latin by Charles Coffin, who was a leader of the University in pa in, of Paris in 1736. He actually wrote over a hundred Latin hymns. So the first curiosity is what was somebody in the 18th century doing? writing a hundred hymns in Latin. I guess it shows that there were a lot of people who were pretty conversant in Latin uh, as, as, as a spoken language in France at the time. Uh, the second curious thing about this hymn is that it was, it was translated by a, a, a priest called John Chandler who followed his father as vicar of Whitley in Surrey and he published a translation of it in 1837 but the curious thing is that he published it in a collection of hymns of the primitive church. Well, this wasn't a hymn of the primitive church. It had only been written less than 100 years before he translated it. So did he know that? Did he get it confused? Or do you think because it came from Latin, we might as well call it primitive? I don't know. The third curious thing about this hymn is that it's usually sung by the church on the second or third Sunday in Advent for the obvious reason that it starts uh, with the lines on Jordan's bank, the Baptist cry announces that the Lord is nigh. The thing is that actually there's no other reference to John the Baptist in the whole hymn. So it's actually only sort of a, 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 a hymn about John the Baptist, or not really at all, but of course the secret is the first line with hymns, and, and that's what they become known by. So three curious things about this hymn. But you can't argue with the tune and you can't argue with the theology. We remain seated uh, and we'll, the voices will stand and lead us and we'll sing on Jordan's Bank.
Well, we're coming towards the end of Great Sacred Music for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, if you have, there's various opportunities to donate uh, as you leave, if you're in the building, or as you clock off if you're online. Uh, there's text, there's the website, there is a swipe machine as you depart, and there is even cash. There are all sorts of ways to give. Uh, thank you in advance. Do take a note on the back of the sheets of upcoming choral classics, very similar to the format of Great Sacred Music, a little bit shorter. Uh, those take place Sundays at 3.15, and the Lamb is the theme this Sunday, and then take a note on the back of the sheets of the themes for the next few GSMs. We're going to finish with a spiritual that uh, reflects, as many spirituals do, on the multivalence of some of the major scriptural motifs. So the River Jordan is a major scriptural motif, no question about it. It first comes into the story when Joshua crosses into the promised land at the beginning of the book of Joshua. Uh, it remains a threshold uh, point throughout the Old Testament, most obviously in the departure of Elijah up to heaven and leaving his mantle on Elisha. Uh, and then, of course, it figures greatly in the story of the beginning of Jesus's ministry, Jesus's baptism, and the way John the Baptist uh, baptizes many at the Jordan. So it remains a threshold. And then it becomes a kind of figure uh, in the Christian imagination of uh, crossing the Jordan being like a way of talking about dying and going to heaven, heaven as a sort of promised land, uh, and then finally for the slaves in the American South, the, uh, it, it becomes a figure for the Ohio River, which was the boundary uh, between slavery and freedom for those slaves who managed to escape across the Ohio, Ohio, the Ohio River. So lots of multivalence in the way the Jordan is used in this final piece to reflect on the legacy of John the Baptist. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>